Welcome, fellow traveler. You are now listening to the Tent Theology Podcast. Each week, we have a tent talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social and political imagination. Hello, friends. Stephen here. Today's interview is with Justin Bronson Berenger. In my work as a political theologian, I often have to set essays or articles as assignments to my students, and I have found Justin's work to be very valuable over the years. And I was so pleased to invite him onto the program. In fact, this interview you're about to hear is the first time I ever spoke to him, and we've become friends because of this podcast. Originally, I interviewed Justin over two separate occasions, but I've decided to splice the shorter conversations together into one longer interview. So please do ignore those parts where I refer to the previous conversation or where I invite Justin back next week. I really enjoyed meeting Justin, and I know you will too. Right, on with the program. Welcome back, friends, to another edition of Tent Talks, which is the interview portion of Tent Theology Podcast. And as you know, I love to seek out people who I think are doing the stuff. They're walking the talk. They're actually putting it into practice. All this renewed Christian political imagination that we keep talking about. And when I was putting together my list of people to talk about, Justin Bronson Berenger was at the top of this list. Justin is somebody who, who in fact, when I have students who are working with me through political theology or introductions to Christian political theology, I actually assign Justin's work to my students. And then through the magic of Facebook, we became Facebook friends. And what is more, we've now become actual friends. So I'm really glad to actually be meeting at this time through the magic of podcasting, a man whose work I have been following for quite some time. Justin and his wife, they live in Dallas, Texas, where Justin is doing a PhD, and he'll tell us more about his PhD. He and his wife are also the co-founders of Diapers Etc., a charity that is finding ways to resource some of the poor and marginal people in their community. And they do this through the church, who I think I'm going to get the name wrong, Oakwood Church. Owenwood. Owenwood. Owenwood Church. There you go. You just heard Justin speak up for his church community. So Justin is a pastor. He works for uh, he works as a, as a charity worker, and he is a scholar. And I'm going to suggest a gentleman as well. So, Justin, thank you so much for coming to the uh, thank you to for TED having Talks. me. A gentleman. I don't know that uh, that term has has ever been applied to me. Uh, so I appreciate that. Well, it, maybe we'll even talk about how we resolve conflicts. Uh, in gentlemanly way, in gentle ways, right? Yeah. As we talk. I'm up for that. Now, I mentioned that you're doing a PhD. And in fact, I don't even know what technically you're doing your PhD in. Can you tell us? You're you're at Southern Methodist University. Is that right? I am at Southern Methodist University and I'm I'm doing my PhD in religious ethics. Uh, I'm working with um, a scholar who I have admired for years from afar, um, D. Stephen Long. Who, who was uh, a student of Stanley Hauerwas's and who yep. writes just, just brilliant theology and ethics. And um, he and I have become friends, which is just the coolest thing. Uh, I couldn't have asked for a better program. Um, our professors have us over for 
meals and and we we go to conferences together and we even serve the community together. I remember one time recently uh, at Diapers Etc., the organization my wife and I run, I had my advisor was over there sweeping the floors, getting ready right, for one right. of our events. And, you know, so I'm, I'm not only learning sort of the academic side, but I'm learning a lot about how to live a good life um, through, through Steve. So I'm deeply appreciative of that. And are you are you working in the field of of war and violence studies, or what are you doing your PhD on right now? So indirectly, so I'm I'm dissertating on a guy named Bayard Rustin, who was Martin Luther King's mentor in nonviolence. He organized the the famous March on Washington. Um, he was doing uh, equivalents to the the Freedom Rides and stuff like that. 20 years before that, or 15 years or so before that, you know, more famous stuff happened. Yep. And um, he started his career really as an, an act, a peace activist for the Fellowship okay. of Reconciliation. So he traveled the country and traveled the globe talking about pacifism and was actually um, put in prison for about three years during World War II um for conscientious objection and even he even refused to to serve in the camps uh that were reserved for conscientious objectors because he didn't want to support the war and of course the, the moment they threw him into prison he started organizing people for racial integration of the prisons in, in 1940 so uh yeah so i'm writing about him but i'm focusing more on his economic the way that his faith and his friendships uh, affect the way that he viewed economic equity in the world. So indirectly, there's some tie-ins to, to to war because, you know, as as um, my new book is coming out, we talk about the business of war. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of his work deals with that and the the funding of war and how that takes funding from other um, other aspects of society. You know, that, that we could be funding instead. So that, that's the long answer. So not directly right now, but that's definitely been always, it's always involved somewhere in the work that I do. It's yeah. something that will um, probably continue to be a part of my work. Can you tell us a little bit more about this, the business of war book that's coming yeah. out? I'm this excited about it. my so, attention, yeah. Yeah, so this one release date in the US at least is October 1st, I'm okay. not sure what um, Cascade, uh, Whippenstock's release date is elsewhere, but um, it's called The Business of War, Theological and Ethical Reflections on the Military-Industrial Complex. Okay. And it's a collection of, of new essays by a variety of authors. We've got a, a historian, we've got some, some biblical scholars, we've got some theologians, some ethicists, and, and basically we're looking at Sort of the idea of the military industrial complex which we're kind of thinking of as um let's see i think we've we've called this um the i'm trying to find the wording here but these the industrial complexes are economic subsystems within the larger larger global market that are dependent on private actors influencing and even shaping public policies and practices Mm -hmm. to promote their continual expansion. So it's basically like thinking about war through 
uh, sort of colonial expansion of capitalism okay. into enterprise of war. So thinking of war specifically from a business perspective. So there's essays questioning, you know, is is it cost effective, for instance, to be, you know, deal with just war, for instance, right. um, or um, questions about the one of the the essays that I I think is very interesting is about the business of war in the Korean Peninsula and how the world thinks of North Korea as the threat, but when you look at the financials of it, um, South Korea has ten times the amount of money and weaponry. And all that, and that's not even counting what the U.S. and other allies have put in. So, I mean, just just the massive amount of uh, weaponry and military power that South Korea has in comparison to North Korea. So, there's all those kind of questions, um, questions about how we might politically respond yeah. to this idea of it, of it being a business and the connections between racism and militarism. And, and capitalism, um, all those kind of issues. So rather than looking at war through sort of the, the standard just war, pacifism kind yeah. of questions, we wanted to ask what it meant that war, especially by America, seems to be perpetuated by certain people profiting from it. So. I'm, I'm really interested how you got into Okay, I'm going to ask two things. First of all, I want to ask, how did you get into, like, what was your catalyzing moment to get you into the peace movement? How did you combine your Christianity with that? But the second thing I'm going to ask you is, you've been doing this a little bit longer than me in terms of uh, peace movement stuff. Uh, and I want to talk about some of the most annoying questions and responses that you always oh, have yeah, to bat yeah. away. But first of all, how did you get into it? Tell me, tell me some of your story here. So, um begrudgingly uh, i'm what my advisor calls a reluctant pacifist yeah um i studied in undergrad not intentionally i was just at a university where lee c camp teaches and lee has written a book called mere discipleship and he has a new one that just came out um, yeah, scandalous witness scandalous witness yeah um and lee was a student of john howard yoder's um which that's a whole nother problem for anybody who knows about Yoder's life. But whatever the case there, Lee um, was the first one to really introduce this possibility of pacifism of nonviolence in my life when I was an undergrad. Yeah. And after probably a year, two years, somewhere in there of thinking through this, I, I just decided I, I couldn't understand the Christian faith in any other way. The more that I read and studied and prayed, and that was strange for me because I grew up in, in a military family, several generations. I write about this in, in, in the Faith Not Worth Fighting for uh, my first book and the essay that I wrote for that. I grew up, you know, it, the military was normal. I went to, to church where many, most of the people who were part of the church were, you know, in the military. So that, that was kind of a strange shift. So Lee kind of got me into it. And then the more I studied, the more I looked, the more committed I became um, to that idea. And then I started um, just working at my the local church churches that I was a part of at the time, kind of teaching some classes, exploring mm. this stuff with other people. And, and, and then it got to the point where 
thankfully some of the folks in in my life who were in the realms of like liberation theology and this sort of thing kind of challenged me that that this could be you know sort of a cop out for a, a pretty large you know white middle class guy in america it's pretty easy in in some sense to be a pacifist right like right. most of it is just people getting annoyed with me when i tell them that but when we look at you know all the possibilities of violence i'm not i'm not really one of the primary people who's threatened by that so then yeah uh, we should I say you're a, you're a white man. We should yeah, say you're yeah. a white and, man. Yeah, and like so you said, violence isn't pretty, against you. Pretty big guy, and I, I you know, um, if I saw me in an alleyway, I wouldn't want to run into me. I, right, you know, right. Um, tattooed, big beard, earrings, you know, all of that kind of stuff. But um, when they challenged me to that, I realized that I needed to start figuring out ways to put that into practice. So I okay. started spending more time with folks who were in situations where yeah. poverty, where violence were realities. And we, we moved into a neighborhood where that was the fact when we moved to Kentucky and, and on and on, it kind of went from there and getting more involved in actual people's lives who either because of economic situation were sort of pushed towards the military because they saw it as their only option, you know, for a career yeah. to get out of the difficult lives they're in or the reality that they were dealing with violence on the streets. Um, yeah every day so that's a long answer to kind of say it's it's been quite a process and honestly i'd be i'd be wary i think of anyone for whom this isn't a process and a struggle um because there's a lot of difficult questions that come up when when we think about violence yeah so what are some of the ones you encountered the most well, it's it's always the same list of questions, yeah. right? And yeah. um, you know, so the for the for the people who are really biblically sort of astute, it's what about Old Testament violence? What about yeah. Romans thirteen and the you know the government having a sword for a purpose? And what about uh, Revelation where it seems like there's this big bloody battle and all these yeah. kind of questions? And then and then other folks ask sort of the the more practical questions. What about protecting people you love? Yeah. Um, what about loving your neighbor? Is it not a neglect of that duty if you're not willing to use violence to protect them? Um, there's there's questions that, you know, a, a big one in, in the U.S., and I don't know how this works out necessarily in all countries, but in, in the U.S., it's always what about the the men and women who gave their lives? You could even be free to talk about this is a, is a you know, a yeah. big question that comes up. So it's that kind of list of questions and from some people i think they're genuine questions they really want yeah. to know and then from some people the question is really a way of stating a, an objection yeah um, and and you know so i've gotten used to over the years figuring out who really yeah wants to talk this stuff out yeah and who really is just trying to you know think of a a quick objection to to christ commands and examples to 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 be nonviolent people to be peaceable people what why is it why do you think it is that you know 99.9 percent .9 of things jesus says and does lead towards not using lethal violence on your enemies in half of a verse he says go buy a sword <laughs> and in that same verse he then explains to his followers why he said that um, but why do you think that like 
so many people just want to read that half of a verse in order to justify everything up to and including nuclear Armageddon. Yeah, um, so... What, what is it in us? What is it in Christians that want to kill their enemies? I, I think the way that I often talk about this is that so much of the Christian life is sort of difficult. So we all find ways to look for justifications for why we can get away with this or why we should do that thing. So it's not just about uh, war and violence, right? Um, right. I think, I think we're, we're taught, again, especially in American culture, that you know, it's, it's totally the norm to go to a sporting event and the military airplanes fly over and they bring troops out on the field and all of these kind of things. So here, it just, you're raised up and that's just part of the lifeblood. The business um, of war. Seeped, yeah, and it's yeah. seeped into the American church. And so for, for most folks, and myself included growing up, it was so normal um, that when somebody actually comes and says, hey, let's actually look at the teachings of Jesus. Let's let's look at, you know, not just Jesus, going through various mm -hmm. other parts of Scripture. Let's take a closer look at this. People immediately put up walls because they have been so, um, be careful using this word, but but it really is indoctrination. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it's a it's a slow and steady one that kind of starts by saying the Pledge of Allegiance every day in, in public school. And, you know, you, you'll hear um, in, in uh, say, Veterans Day at, at the churches that I grew up in, they would have all the veterans stand up and the church would clap and they would pray, you know, for U.S. troop safety and all of these kinds of things. So it just becomes such a part of our faith, our life that questioning it seems it, it seems sacrosanct so questioning it immediately seems like a threat to your christian faith even yeah um, so i think yeah so it, the, the 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 way of summing that up is in part is it's difficult and we christian we we human folks don't really you know like things that are difficult in our lives there's there's so many other examples right of of you know the difficulty of marriage people want to get out of marriage and i i can compare that and say that's you know some of jesus's commands on marriage i'm sure my wife has thought what in the world why should, right. you know why, why should i stick with this guy for life right but right. that's the reality and so that that's one part and then the second part is just that we've been so inundated with it that thinking about it in a different way just seems out of bounds for how we're even able to process that possibility. How have you found it? So, I mean, you're, you're still in, it's not like you physically have left the South. It's not like you physically left some of these hotspots for patriotic nationalism. You haven't left Christianity. So what's happened to your identity and your social identity? Like how have you found fellow travelers or how do you find your community? I have been really fortunate um, over the past many years to be able to be a part of churches that I would call really healthy. And, and a part of what I mean by healthy is churches that are willing to sort of, um, <laughs> it's a great phrase, you duke it out um, right. on these important topics that have really serious in-depth discussions to have argument, to have disagreement, but also be committed to one another. Right. And I know that I know that's rare. 
because I talked to people who I, I was just on the, the phone with a friend last night who, who was at a church that wasn't able to do this and people were splitting off because, you know, because mm. of arguments. I've been fortunate for the most part at the churches I've been, even though they're not peace churches, um, which is interesting in, in the denomination I've come from, which is the Churches of Christ, the Stone mm -hmm. Campbell Restoration Movement, um, started off as a, as a, an anarcho-pacifist movement that almost, I mean, it, it mirrors the, the Radical Reformation, the Anabaptist movement, yeah. almost exactly, except that it happened a couple hundred years later. Um, but that's inside. That is not the reality of our denomination today. And I'm currently now in a United Methodist Church, also not the reality. I go to go to church with, you know, a number of, of folks who are current or former members of the military. And um, a lot of it has been these questions, these objections. And I try, my wife can tell you when I first, as, as is often the case with converts, when I first sort of came to this, I was sort of an angry pacifist, right? Yeah, yeah. I was like, damn it, people, why can't you just see that this is what Jesus teaches? It's so clear. Like, yeah. But then yeah. I had to, you know, my wife reminded me, hey, Justin, you are at, you know, Christian college and you, you, you didn't yeah. see any of this. So why should you, you expect? And so over, over time, I've kind of learned how to bring it up in the form of questions, um, in the form of saying, okay, let's, let's sit down and look at these verses that you're concerned about. What might they mean? That kind of thing. Yeah. And I've actually been asked by my churches that I've been at to teach classes on war and peace. And so I try to give just war, for instance, a fair hearing. And say, you know, the two options that Christians have are just war and pacifism, yeah. um, which immediately, even that, you know, brings people out of, breaks them out of sort of their patriotic, you know, bomb the hell out of whoever kind yeah. of mold. Um, I think, just, I to, just to pause you, I don't think the U.S. has ever been involved in a just war, even by oh, a just I, war standard, you know. I don't, not, none of I don't think so either. And no. I... I would usually say that and there's there's always some questions about world war ii and i would talk about you know how how as far as i read i'm not a historian but the way yeah. that i read the history and some of my historian friends have definitely backed me up in this that that hiroshima and nagasaki are are yeah. expect their their revenge for pearl harbor exactly um, as much yeah. as they are anything else and so um well, no target, no direct targeting of civilians uh, is allowed under just war. So right exactly. away, World War II with Dresden, Nagasaki, Hiroshima, uh, already it's not a just war. It, yeah. That's the closest we have to a just war. And even that doesn't meet the criteria. So anyway, <laughs> sorry yeah, to interrupt. Can we talk about that? And, and yeah. I, but I would, I, I would be, I mean, honestly, I would be overjoyed if even just war was taught yeah, exactly. In in most churches, because yeah, yeah, functionally, it would still make most people, if they adopted that, yeah, would would make them functional pacifists. Functional pacifists, yeah. It really took, and this is, you know, some some of um one of my my favorite uh, writers on on just wars, a guy named Tobias Winwright, who's just a, a fantastic human being, um, and great scholar, and and. You know, he studied with with both Yoder and Hauerwas and still managed somehow to come out on on the just war side. But but I think talking with him, it, he would recognize that that there's yeah. a, a functional pacifism. And thankfully, there's been 
uh, Glenn Stossen did some great work trying to bring pacifists and just war folks together in an idea of just peace saying, what can we cooperate on yeah. that yeah. will prevent you know, war making and violence? And yeah. so there's yeah. all of these ideas of, of that, that um, Tobias has written on, on, on uh, just post-bellum, what comes, what comes after the war? How do, we, how do we help clean up? How do we rebuild societies? How do we, how do we yeah. make places yeah. healthier? Um, so that violence becomes less likely, right? Yeah. So I can't even remember what the original question is, but uh, yeah, that's that's. So you're finding mind. you're finding uh, even though you're in churches which don't subscribe to, it doesn't get much different between somebody who thinks it's okay to kill a human being and somebody who doesn't. And yet you're yeah. still in worshiping communities with people who think, yeah, it's fine to kill human beings for the sake yeah. of a flag or private property or whatever. Yeah, and, and I often I often find challenges. I've for the last couple of years, my wife and I have been in a, a really interesting and, and kind of beautiful situation where the Sunday school class we're a part of, the average age in the class is somewhere between 70 and 80. Um, and so many of the people in there were you know in in various american wars ranging from i you know i think maybe as far back as world war ii i'm not good at math you know but definitely in in korea vietnam yeah. these kinds of things and and so they'll they kind of take personally and i in some sense i yeah, understand right. that right like if if they really thought they were fighting for for good things for freedom for justice for you know, helping people that are, um, uh, you know, being attacked unjustly, all of these kind of things. And you kind of bring up, well, maybe Jesus didn't want this for us because it's like, how do they go back and change? You know, they're, they're yeah, right. so they can't, they can't go back and decide not to fight. And, it, and then what does it mean at that age to, to say, okay, I agree with you now. And so there's, there's a lot of difficulties in that but we still we still talk about it and sometimes there's disagree to disagree kind of thing but i usually push on that and say i don't know that we can let it go that easy we yeah. might ultimately in a sense agree to disagree but it's not going to be until after we've done the work yeah. until after we've fought through together the seriousness of the differences in, in the claims that we're making and then the realities of what that might mean for how we act in the world, right? So I'm yeah. in Texas. Um, I would imagine that a, a fairly high percentage of the members of my church um, carry guns on a regular basis. I don't know if they bring them to church, but I know that they have them on a regular basis, you know, in their homes, in their cars. Um, it's just the reality of being in Texas. And so we we talked about those kind of things. And yeah, I guess yeah. one way, I, this is how I'll, I'll maybe in talk about this question is, is that I've thought about what what is it or who is it that they're worshiping with when they're worshiping with me, right? Okay. Like, so what what problems, issues, problematic views do I bring to the table? that maybe I don't see, maybe or I'm blind to, but other people okay. recognize quite quickly, right? I can be, I can be brash. I can be 
uh, you know, it, it, this, is, this comes with the territory of, of doctoral work. Sometimes like there's a certain arrogance that can right. come with that, right? All of these kinds of things. And they worship with me. Yeah. They choose to worship with me. And so I can worship with them because I trust that they have a deep love for Jesus Christ. And especially when it's at a church where these discussions are happening, when we're really not trying to ignore the possibilities of these difficult discussions, but we're talking about them yeah. and we're wrestling over them and we're having conflict about them. And then we're going out to lunch when it's not a time of COVID. We're going out to lunch together afterwards. And, you know, um, so yeah, I, I am fortunate that, that they worship with me. And so I take that as a, as a sort of sign if, if they can, if they can share communion with me, um, then I, I ought to be open, especially when, again, they're folks who are still um, uh, in fear and trembling, working out their salvation, even, even in, in these elder years are, are working out, yeah. trying to figure out what their faith means still. That's uh, a really beautiful and convicting thing for me. I've been struck by, you know, David Bentley Hart's translation of the New Testament. I don't yeah. know if you, if you read that, but uh, I haven't but, read it yet. I need to, I need to get both his and uh, his rights so I can, yeah, you know, side by side. Compare he, contrast. <laughs> his his um, translation of the fruits of the spirit was very interesting. If you look in Galatians and, and he translates, I think I'm trying to think what it was, maybe hospitality or, you know, uh, he translates one of those kindness or, or hospitality as magnanimity. Hmm. And I, I was very interested by that because magnanimity is, it's a virtue that's given to somebody. It's not a lowly virtue. It's like, a, it's like a, it's like somebody who's a good winner or who's mm -hmm. holding their, the table graciously. It's like somebody who's in charge of the space and is saying, I, I want you to be a part of my space. I'm going to overlook problems. So the magnanimous person is somebody who, who, who almost has the moral superiority to overlook somebody else's problems and lets them into the space anyway, right? And, yeah. And it's interesting because it's, uh, it's not an ethic or, a, or an attitude of like, oh, I'm just lowly and cringing and I'll do it. You know, I'm meek. It's not that kind of meekness. It's the meekness that comes from, I can hold this space. I'm not going to break a relationship with you just because, you know, you're, trem you're trembling, on, you're stamping on my toes or something like that. But anyway, I just I've been struck by that, that how much of the fruits of the spirit we need, long suffering, patience, kindness, self-control when we're oh, absolutely in I, I with each other. I don't know what we do. I need to look into that because um, I'm thinking back to, to Aristotle's um, what he called great soul man, which is the person who was magnanimous. Yeah. But for him, it's very it's a very elitist right kind of um, virtue. So I'd be I'd, I'd be interested to kind of. Look at well, those so is David Bentley Hart. <laughs> DBH yeah. is pretty elitist as well. So yeah, 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 yeah. He, he's a. I I um, have to always use a dictionary. Oh yeah. Uh, when I when I read when I read him, there's I, my vocabulary is not nearly expansive enough to <laughs> to read him with without a dictionary nearby. I just laugh. I think he's doing it on. Yeah. He's just doing it on purpose, which is fine. You know, he's yeah. He's he's making us work for our understanding. I, oh yeah, and there's there's a few people like that that just have that 
that next level ability to to do that kind of work. And I, I I've, I've said before that I that I wish I had the ability to write like that and the prudence to know when not to. Yeah. Um, because that's what I found with some some writers uh, that have that kind of capacity. Sometimes they ought not do that. <laughs> you know, sometimes they need to step back. But anyway, that's interesting. That's another I mean, reason that I need to go ahead and get that translation. It's it's well worth it. It really is well worth it. You were talking about um, definitions of words and things, and it actually related to something I was going to ask you about, which is the word pacifism. And you talked about being in conflict with your people in church. Um, now, I don't like the word pacifism. Neither does Stanley mm. Hauerwas, but you seem to use it quite happily. So c- can you talk, talk us a little bit through why do you use the word pacifist? How do you think it relates to being in conflict with others, and you don't use the word nonviolent resistance, something like that. So um, tell us a bit about I that. I think I, I use them all, and I do see the distinction. Um, in A Faith Not Worth Fighting For, um, uh, uh, Rosalie Veloso, uh, I think it's Ewell, Ewell, I can't ever remember how to pronounce her name, and I apologize for that, but she writes a really great essay on um, responding to the to the question, isn't pacifism passive? Mm. And she makes a connection between the English word pacifism and the word we get for passion, um, as in the passion of the Christ. And so I think when mm. when it when we look at it in that range, then the word doesn't mean something to the effect of passivity or other words that might be associated with it, it actually means sort of a passionate contention for being Christ-like, um, that, that it, it relates us to the passion of the Christ, of, of taking action through allowing oneself to be crucified. So I'm perfectly happy to use that. And also, it's just, it's a word that, that I think people have an idea. Yeah. Uh, so it's a good starting place, but I, I'm perfectly happy to use nonviolent civil disobedience or nonviolent resistance or all of those are, are words that perhaps I, I use interchangeably in a way that might not be entirely responsible, but um, I'm pretty persuaded by that idea that if we can connect pacifism with an idea of passionate action, yeah. Uh, then we we end up with something that's you know essentially the idea of of nonviolent resistance that kind of thing. I really do feel it is a central plank in our you know, what whatever a renewed social and political imagination looks like for followers of Jesus. It has got to take something like nonviolent pacifism seriously. It's got oh, to be absolutely. a central plank. And yeah. and I I look at the guy that I mentioned earlier, who I'm writing my dissertation on, Bayard Rustin, and the stuff that he was able to accomplish with with his group of friends through nonviolent work is just, I mean, it's, yeah. it's astonishing to look at his life and everything from racial reconciliation to economic betterment to international relations. Um, he, he ended up advising a number of government leaders, a lot of African nations who were coming out of colonialism, 
uh, Jawal Nehru, uh, the first prime minister of India, who was you know, Gandhi's sort of right-hand man. Uh, Rustin sort of advised him in later years. So he, he brought that idea at least and set it with, with those folks who were governing uh, to the extent, you know, to whatever extent they decided to do or not do that, you know, there's a lot of variation, but yeah, I think it absolutely. And, and just, just even pragmatically, just even pragmatically, theologically, sort of theoretically, yeah, but even pragmatically, it seems that it just, it, it works, even if that's not why we're committed to it. Right. I'm no, you know, I'm no utopian, yeah, naive, yeah. naive utopian, but nonviolent action brings about often the consequences that we want and allows for the people, all people involved, to live together well afterwards. Justin and I talked about, in fact, he wrote a book about it, right? The questions that come up again and again, if anybody trying to pursue nonviolent to pacifism in the Christian sphere, there are a handful of questions and complaints and comments that come up with absolute regularity. It's, it, you can set your watch to it, the kind of questions that you'll be asked. And Justin, actually, his book, A Faith Not Worth Fighting For, just tackles each one of those head on. So I would say to listeners who are themselves asking them those questions, they will be dealt with in the course of this 10th Theology podcast. We're not avoiding them. We are trying to set the scene for, for when is a good time to talk about some of this stuff. So don't worry. Romans 13, Jesus telling people to buy a sword, book of Revelation and all the violence in that, Old Testament violence. This is stuff we've talked about before and we will talk about it again. Don't you worry. But in this particular conversation, I wanted to talk with Justin about some of the work he'd been do he's been doing on those letters that you get in 1 Peter and in Paul about submission. And I want to talk to Justin about the submission ethic, how it changes the world or how it doesn't change. And I also want to talk with him about a language of Christian anarchy which came up at the end of our last interview. And I thought this is a good place to talk about it now. So Justin, are you an anarchist? Uh, yes, but, but qualified that, that this is one of the few times that I use Christian as an adjective yeah. um, to say Christian anarchism. There's, there's a particular tradition that, that I find compelling um, a tradition that, that, we find in the early church, we find in the Radical Reformation that uh, anachronistically we could call anarchism, Christian anarchism. Yeah. Um, but there's a tradition also from the, the you know, 20th century, maybe late 19th, 19th century on that actually identifies as Christian anarchism. And I find myself in that, in that tradition. I mean, for pretend we met at the back of church <laughs> we're we're holding our weak cup of coffee and we're having small talk and uh, and you use the a word and my eyebrows uh, fly up how do you define that somebody how do you how do you talk to to fellow christians about how would you define christian anarchy yeah so i i like there's there's two people jacques Ellul, um and bernard eller both both folks who identify as christian anarchists both folks that everyone should read, but 
Uh, Lul says that anarchism first and foremost is, uh, I can't remember if you used the word pacifism or nonviolence, but a refusal to, to do violence. Yeah. Um, and so that's one thing I'll talk about because of course, for, for most folks, the uh, thought of anarchism is, you know, folks in masks throwing Molotov cocktails or doing some, yeah. some kind of thing like violent acts and trying to just destroy the governments and all of these kind of things. Um, and so I try to push back against a little by defining it like that. And then Bernard Eller talks about um, a Greek word uh, that's, that's used in the, the New Testament, archi. Mm. Uh, and it's the word for like powers, uh, governments, the idea of the powers and principalities and say, so what, what we mean when we say that is to say that we're just not terribly impressed by governments or other powers. It could be corporations. It could be even powers within the church that that positions of authority and all this aren't so impressive to us. Yeah. Um, and that we find that the kind of work that the church is supposed to be doing in the world is not, not generally at those levels. It's, yeah. it's within community, within relationship. I was just posted a quote the other day. I think it was from Origin. And he says that, that our prayers do more than, than any warrior on the battlefield for the peace of our, our nation or community. Um, and so I talk about that, about how when we say anarchates, it's, it's being against the powers and principalities. Which against the archies. Yeah. yeah, the archies, right? And yeah. this is this is, you know, yeah. straight out of the New Testament that our battle's not against flesh and blood, but the powers and principalities, you know, of the air. Yeah. And yeah. so when I describe it in that way, especially for people who are um, you know, aware of those verses and stuff, it at least starts to sink in and make a little sense yeah. and, and separates out from that picture of the the sort of anarchist that that some people view and that frankly has been sometimes part of a part of an anarchist tradition yeah but a christian anarchist isn't uh, someone who's saying chaos over order it's it's just a different way of ordering ourselves it's a different way of holding power we're just a christian anarchist is just trying not to dominate the spaces with their power right yeah, absolutely. So, so I I love the language that Greg Boyd uses around this when he talks about the difference between power over and power under. Right. And and for the for the Christian, like I, I wish I wish I could sort of not say Christian anarchist because I see this as just sort of fundamental Christian stuff. You know, yeah. I can just use Christian or disciple of Christ yeah, or yeah. some follower away, and it automatically be taken to indicate this stuff. But since it's not. Yeah. I, I, I sort of reluctantly take on this moniker as a way of sort of breaking those things out. But it's it's an idea of power under. Um, and this is what I've written about in First Peter. There's that really weird verse where Jesus goes and preaches to the souls mm-hmm. in Hades and hell. And I've read so many interpretations and I ultimately don't know what it means. Like I, I but what I think one thing it indicates is that Jesus is willing to go to the very lowest place, right? In, in ancient cosmology, this is considered to be the, the lowest place, like actually physically down 
goes yep. to the lowest place to reach reach up and and pull people up okay uh, and so that's sort of what the christian ought to do i used to call it downward mobility but i i've, I've more recently started calling it missional mobility okay uh, because it, it differs some people are at the bottom and so downward mobility is not what they need to be doing necessarily they're they're already right. there yeah. but they have the opportunity to use that as a mission to uplift others and for those of us who find ourselves in places of power and privilege as as a missional work we go down we simplify our lives we join in solidarity um and we lift people up rather than sort of pushing them down or pushing them to do what it is we think that they need to do what is right we lift them up and help them discover that for themselves and discover what their position in life might actually um mean as it relates to to the christian life i mean you wrote so the the reason you came across my uh my radar such a, a quite a while ago now was this essay that you wrote called subordination and freedom tracing anarchist themes in first peter which you just mentioned now but and uh you know is that essay first of all i think it's available i think you just google it i think you can find yeah, it online. in good anarchist fashion it the whole book um yeah is is free um you can find like like i said google it you can um download the whole book uh, the book PDF is essays in yeah essays in anarchism and religion essay. yeah what's that sorry i said the book is called essays in anarchism and religion oh, ironic yeah. that we talked over each other just there we we're very yeah. anarchic <laughs> it's 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 essays in anarchism and religion volume two it's a three volume series okay. Okay. Um, that explores not just Christianity, but anarchism in relation to um, multiple religions. Um, it's a really fascinating series, honestly. But yeah, you can find all all of the essays are, are free online. So if you Google it, you should be able to to, to pull up that that first Peter essay that I wrote. So my back of church coffee is going very cold now because I'm really interested in this conversation, and I'm politely asking you. Wow. So you find Christian anarchism in first Peter where he says, I want wives to submit to husbands and I want everyone to submit to the Caesar. Surely that is the most proof text domination, conservative uh, rhetoric that we have. How is that a Christian anarchist theme? That, yes. Yeah, so that is, is part of the reason I was interested in first Peter. So years ago when I was in seminary, I was in a new Testament course and, um, I came across this and it, it, this verse where in 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 one breath Peter says honor you know sub submit yourself or subordinate yourself to the king uh the emperor and then like a, a sentence or so later says live as free people and so my original question was how do those two things fit together right. so I wrote an essay for that class just kind of trying to untangle all of that and then um i just started seeing more and more stuff going on there and so i think in a, in a short way of putting it i think peter is is sort of being a trickster so he's writing to insiders that understand certain aspects of what he's saying that is different than the outsiders so there's a tradition in the ancient world called the household code so lots of um ancient philosophers religious leaders would write in this standard you know 
husbands do this, wives do this, citizens do this, slaves do this, all of it. So it uses this. So it's a code that somebody from the outside, a non-Christian would say, oh, most of this seems to more or less match up with our, right. our expectations. You know, these Christians aren't really that, you know, bad or whatever. But to the insiders, when you start looking at some of the details of it, then start, stuff starts to open up. So, um, for instance, um, I'll, I'll talk about the wives one, for instance, as, as a, an example that I found just so much on. Um, when he's talking about wives, the expectation in the ancient Near East was that wives would be a part of whatever religion. They would worship the god or gods that their husband worshipped. So okay. immediately, just by noting the fact that he's talking about these women worshiping a god is not their husband's god, you already see that they've broken away from that tradition. So, I mean, it just it starts right there, that they're worshiping this god. Um, and then he talks about, um, you know, kind of this idea of Sarah, Abraham's wife, is the ideal wife. But then anybody familiar with the story of Sarah, which a lot of these these Christians would be, um, would know, oh, wait, Sarah, Sarah is not the, the, the sort of paragon of wifely submission, right? Like she laughs at her husband. She tells her husband what to do. Like, and so you, you start to see he must be getting at something else. Um, and part of what he's getting at, I think, hmm. is them being able, e even in a society like that to own their agency to sort of first of all commend them for having the agency to choose the worship of the true and living god but then say okay you're in a position where you've already been pushed down so while you're there why don't you take the opportunity to be an example to your husband so that you can this this is what's great and so now it becomes not the husband making the wife be part of a particular religion but the wife having the power to bring her husband with her into the christian faith into worshiping yahweh right so it flips the script completely um about about what power relations mean um and and that um i i break down in a lot more detail but that's sort of an overview of it and then with um, with the government thing, there's there's this similar thing happening. Like I said, you have this honor the king and live as free people, um, but you have a number of things throughout the book that indicate, right, that that that, that the, the very beginning of First Peter opens up with this idea of you're aliens in the land, you're not citizens here. So even there, he's starting to like set the stage or yeah sure give the king honor but you do it just to say because he's a he's a human being right like so sure honor the king give him his due like give the caesar what caesar's if he asks for taxes pay your taxes whatever do that but we don't honor the king any more yeah than we honor any other person right yeah. and so yeah. he goes yeah. through this whole thing of of um sort of unpacking this idea that we're we're to love the family of believers that that we're we're a royal priesthood right like all of these kinds the kinds of language there sort of undermines 
this this um, this idea of of submitting is the way it's usually translated in in the English. Uh, but the Greek word is something more like subordinate. Okay. And the way that I parse out the difference in those words is one seems to submit sort of um, indicate obedience, whereas subordinate doesn't necessarily have the connotation. So in the Greek, there's multiple words that could be used there for something like obedience, but he picks um, uh, uptaso, which is, is a verb that means kind of find your place in society. Okay. And wherever that place is, use it as a way to be a witness for Christ, right? So um, if, if you're a, a person of power, then I call you to actually think about subordinating yourselves, right? So he talks to husbands, which in the ancient household codes was, was common that you talk to the husbands first and you tell them what mm. to do. And maybe, maybe you say something to the wives, maybe not. But when you do, it's just kind of do this, don't do that. But when he talks, he talks to the wives first. Right. He puts them first and he talks to them and he says, here's why you should do what, I, you know, what I'm you know, saying you should do. Um, and that was very uncommon for these kind of household codes. So even there, he's showing their agency. Um, and so the same thing comes with citizens. That he's showing them that their agency, wherever they are in society, they can they can honor the king. That's perfectly acceptable Christian behavior, but you don't do it in a way that demands obedience. But rather, you do it to the point that you're able until it comes in contradiction. Is, is what Peter says in contradiction with whatever Jesus is calling us to. And at that yeah. point, you you quit anything that looks like obedience to, to sort of paraphrase Gandhi, right? Like at, at the end of that, you might have my, you know, you might kill me and you'll have my dead body, but you won't have my obedience. Right. It's kind of that idea that um, you do this to the point that you can, but you stay faithful to the Christian calling, knowing that it might cost you up to your life, right? And you say, that's fine, but I, I won't give you my obedience at any point when it comes in contradiction with what it is that Jesus has called me to do and, and called me to be. But you remain subordinate because you are not trying to erase the leader, you know, from, from the face of the earth kind of thing. You're not trying to change the order of society. You're just not, is that, is that why it's subordinate? Well, because you're, you're still recognizing the validity of the person against you? To, to an extent. So this, this, um, kind of subordination is the idea of, of Jesus and the the sort of mustard seed, right? It it, okay. it grows slowly and becomes the biggest plant in the garden. And so the idea here is that you win people to the Christian faith. And as you're winning people to the Christian faith, if they're taking seriously these ideas of mutual subordination, of of mutual edification, it 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 does transform the society, right? Mm. And and we see this in, in the way that the Christians had a massive impact in their first several centuries, not because they had people in power. I mean, eventually that's what happens, but that comes from 
a community that's that's growing. And so it is a way of of eventually trying to bring down the powers and principalities, but to do so, uh, the, the, the representatives of the powers and principalities, to do so in a way in which they are offered the, the gift of joining the Christian family, of joining the Christian community, and living as part of that welcoming space where all people are treated with dignity and equity and these kinds of things. So the subordination is a sort of, uh, you might call it a slow revolution or something like that. It's first of all practical, right? You, if, if Christians, small group of Christians had decided, hey, we're gonna try to fight and overthrow the powers of be. Yeah. You look centuries earlier at the, um, the, the rebellion of the Jews, um, and you see that they get crushed, right? Yeah, right. Uh, there's, there's, um, it's a support. It's a, it's a, it's a revolution via evangelism, via bringing people into living as followers of Christ. And as they do that, then they become willing. Um, they become called to. It becomes demanded of them as followers of Christ to give up positions of power and authority and even the way that peter addresses so he addresses the elders of the church yeah and it's fascinating just for instance he doesn't address them as he could have as an apostle kind of you know saying i have authority over you because i'm apostle and you're just local elders of the church but he says i commend you as a fellow elder right and then he gives them this list of of, of ways of being of, of young people listening to old folks and all of these kinds of things and learning from them so even in that he indicates that the idea of christian community is equity and if that christian community grows then it necessarily changes the hierarchical systems around i don't think i use this language in this chapter i can't remember but um so the christian community becomes um i've written about this elsewhere but becomes a fluid hierarchy okay. so we look at people in in a place of power and authority and all this based on things like their gifts their callings right? right so there's elders of the church because we've seen that they have particular wisdom we've seen that you know that the, the, there's criteria laid out for kind of what an elder should be and we say yeah that's a person that we can follow and we can trust to have our best interest in mind but when the situation changes yeah um and somebody else is the best person for the job then you lift them up and, and yeah. put them in, in that place and it it's this fluid hierarchy where slaves can can be at the top sometimes and and yeah. you know other people uh, in power might be there at times but it it's based on um the the gifts and the fruit of the spirit uh rather than um you know based on your birth or based on your outside position in in the rest of society uh it, it becomes based on those things instead so i mean in terms of a, a a worshiping community i can understand this but how does this work out when you're trying to negotiate the space with i don't know an election coming up <laughs> and, you know there's no uh christian anarchy in the uh in the democratic process right now it's not baked into any of the western systems we have so is there any way to transfer mutual submission ethic from 
a worshiping community into the spheres that we would use where they're not at all caring about mutual submission? I don't know, frankly. Um, yeah. I would hope so. And I, 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 again, go back to this sort of idea of evangelism. Um, I, I look at evangelism and that there was a perverted version of this back in the day but called friendship evangelism. But I think friendship is fundamental, or evangelism is fundamentally mm. about building friendships um, and sharing with folks the friendship you have with Christ and inviting others to be a part of that friendship, the, that network of friendships as well. But I, I think that's the way we do it. And then we, we need to be more public as the church yeah. in our witness about this. So how, how do we find ways as right. church communities to show the rest of the world that this is happening? And so one way we might do this is in various kinds of community service, you look at who is the leadership. So I'll give you an example from the ministry, uh, diapers, etc. that my wife and I started a few years ago. Um, a couple of the leaders, like our key leaders, for this are folks who are, came originally because they needed diapers for their kids. Yeah. And there's yeah. the two ladies in particular who, who run the show now. And it's beautiful because they came from the community. They came because they had a need for diapers for their kids. And now they're running the show. And so that's a witness to the world. So whenever I get to tell the story about diapers, et cetera, when we're doing fundraising, all of that, I talk about that. And I think that's a witness to the world. Hey, this can happen where these two minority ladies um, who come from impoverished situations are leading in this organization. Yeah. And really they're the ones who are making it work. And so when you, when groups, church groups do this and they talk about that and they share those stories, you know, here on a podcast, they share those stories in their Facebook post. They share those stories with their friends at work. Then that's how it seeps into the the politics of of the surrounding community um but i don't know that there's any way we can force it on folks well i was just gonna say it's this is the language of being a faithful witness or something that Mm -hmm. it doesn't it doesn't always mean shouting at the powers Sometimes being a faithful witness can mean just doing our own thing, telling our story as well as we can. And that's a faithful yeah. witness to the powers as well, right? Absolutely. We're not seeking the engagement. Day, yeah, absolutely. So the other day, one of our, um, we, were, we were doing a, a diaper distribution. We moved to a, a no-contact drive-through kind of model. But the other day, one of the city councilmen showed up and brought um, a donation of some different supplies. And so I had a, a brief moment to, to talk to him and he was really interested in hearing about how we do what we do there. And yeah. so, you know, he, city councilman's not, you know, somebody of great authority maybe, but somebody who has power and, and is legislating and making decisions and all of that to talk to him about a different sort of way that, that we've done this and how important it's been that we've done it as a community of different kinds of people and, and finding the right place for each person to, to be in the organization that it's not sort of got to be led by my wife and I, because we were the ones who had the opportunity to start it. 
anyway, yeah. so just sharing that with him, hmm. you know, one, because he, he, you know, said, well, I love what you're doing here. And then, and this is real great. You know, he talked about all that for a minute. And so the hope is that that, that influences what he brings then to a city council meeting next time there's a discussion about whether diapers and feminine hygiene products should be taxed. He yeah. might be able to say, well, I was over here the other day and I realized that these are items that people really need. And so taxing them seems unjust, right? And so it can move into those realms. Um, and you can do that through, this is why the church has to do this as the whole church or as a community, because mm -hmm. we each have access to different networks and we each spread mm -hmm. that in our own yeah. networks. Some people have, have the ear of um, a major governing authority or they have the ear of a, a leader of a big company and they can share about this different way of doing things. Yeah. And I know of businesses um, where I, I can't say I, I know as much in the political world, the, the quote political world, but the, the world of legislation where this has happened as much, yeah. but where businesses have changed their entire model because of coming across these kinds of ideas where they've sort of flattened out the hierarchy, yeah. where they've, they've changed the way they do things, where some, some have even, you know, become like worker own co-ops and things like this, right? There's, there's, it is. It's it's all about the the witness. I, I like I like to use evangelism because I think that has has in in the more mainline progressive world where I found myself, evangelism has become kind of a a bad word because yeah. it's been done so poorly so often. It it's been done the exact opposite of what we're talking about here, where yeah. we coerce people, um, where we trick people. Like I it was at this. Texas State Fair and anybody who knows about state fairs they know that the Texas State Fair is just this massive gathering it, it, it got canceled this year for the first time in like 100 years because of COVID but there were these people and they were handing out what looked like hundred dollar bill yeah right and then you open it and it's got a you know like where would you go if you die tonight and his story about hell yeah I'm thinking we're deceiving we're intentionally deceiving people what and kind of like, how off. does that make them want to come and be a part of of the christian community yeah like i yeah. was so frustrated yeah. by that yeah. so evangel i get why evangelism is a bad word but i think if we think of it in the in the original the 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 Greek evangelion, the, the good news that yeah. we have good news to yeah. share with world. the good news that two minority ladies who are from an impoverished neighborhood can come in and now be leaders in an organization that serves 300 families a month. That's good news yeah. because of what Christ has done for us and the way that Christ has transformed us. We can have communities that look like that. So we can share this. This is really good news to the poor, right? Yeah. And, and this has become good news for so many other people in our community. Um, I could talk about this forever. I'll just, just say one more thing about it, but it gets me really excited is, that one of those ladies who's come in, she started mentoring other ladies. And we asked her, where did you meet these ladies? Did you already know them? She said, nope, I just met them here when they came in to get diapers. And so now there's two other ladies that come with her and who help us package and shelve and all of these kind of things. And while they're there, she talks to them about life and raising their kids and all of these kind of things. And I want to tell people, 
that's good news. This is what Jesus Christ yeah. can yeah. do and what the Holy Spirit can do through the church. Yeah. Um, and we really can have more of an influence on society than we think. We, we yeah. have come to think that the only way to make a difference is by campaigning for a particular person, making sure that they get elected, and then mostly just hoping that they do the right thing. And mm -hmm. then the only real threat is if they don't do it, then in two or four years or six years, we'll vote them out of office and try again. Mm -hmm. and, and in that, we've mostly then abdicated our responsibility also yeah. to that person or those people, yeah. um, which ends up then not being politics at all, actually. I think voting is the, the least political act we can do, um, if it's even a political act at all, because politics implies community and relationship, and voting is a private thing that most people don't even want to share. Yeah, they do. You know, who they voted for, what measures they voted on. So we actually can have influence, and we don't have to depend on whatever larger political system we're in, whether that's a democracy or that's a a monarchy or whatever, um, Christians have found ways to be faithful and influence their communities under every kind of government since the church has started. I mean, the whole language of church as an alternative politics, I think people assume that when you say that, you mean some sort of separatism, like have nothing to do with the world. But in fact, it's the opposite. It's like you just described, it's like, no, we, we're holding our power differently. We're, we, our politics look different. And we have connections on all levels of society. Come and see how we do it different and be a part of it, you know, and that's that's it. That's not separatism at all. That's right in the middle of it. Is there is there a place, uh, somebody, a listener who wanted to know more about your work or, or some of the stuff you're talking about? Is there anywhere you could direct us? Yeah, I have a, a website, uh, uh, Rogue Minister, R-O-G-U-E, minister.org. Um, Okay. And it's it's simple little website, but it has links to to my various work and and soon um, this this book, The Business of War, is actually the first of a series. And so very soon we shall have, uh, I believe it'll be the business of modern life. Okay. Dot com, uh, where people can look at the this volume and the others that will be in the series. But rogueminister.org is best place to go. Um, okay. Great. Rogueminister.org. You have your homework, Tent Theology listeners. And uh, now I want you to tell people where to go to find out about diapers, etc. What's going on there? How do we support this work? It's either owenwood.org or owenwood.com. So let's see what, what comes up. Owenwood.org. Okay. And then there's there's a link that says our work and you can click click on diapers, etc. And there's more information about that. But also on Facebook. Um, if you look for diapers, etc., on Facebook, it actually might be a better place okay. because then you can and um, connect with us, you know, through the messaging feature there. Um, if folks want to ask questions, if folks want to donate, if folks want to hear more about it, yeah. Um, yeah. and and there we also have been able to share some some media appearances and different things like that, where we've gotten to talk a little bit about our story. Um, actually, the one of the first ones we did. It was really interesting. It was with uh, CBN, the Christian Broadcasting Network, which for, for folks in America that know that's that's associated with Pat Robertson, yeah. far right kind of stuff. 
but they did a really beautiful story about diaper need and across across the, 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 the US and then they came and interviewed us as like, here's one group who's approaching it. And we got to talk a little bit in that story about things like hospitality and 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 we've intentionally worked in what I bar in this language, but we've worked in what we call an ethic of inefficiency. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a certain degree where when you have so many people coming to a space over a short period of time, you have this certain way you have to be efficient, but we have intentionally worked in times where people have the opportunity to talk with one another. Um, it's always an encouragement to our volunteers. If you, if you don't have something to do, like there's no job for you, go find someone who's sitting alone and talk to them. Right. So this ethic of inefficiency, um, is kind of how we run diapers, et cetera, through, um, through finding ways to, to consistently move more and more into being a hospitable space. Yeah. And one that is also this this has changed a little bit because COVID has kind of thrown us back on our heels a little bit and trying to figure out how to do it in a drive through scenario. But when we get to come back in person, finding more and more ways that community folks who are coming in to receive goods can be involved. And so some of them come in and they bring diapers that that are their kids have outgrown or they they donate some canned goods to the food pantry or some of them have stepped into leadership positions. Um, I know you didn't ask for all that, but, but in, in doing this, the work is intended to, to primarily be a work of hospitality, community, friendship building that happens to meet some physical needs that people have. Yeah. Um, but for us, at the forefront of what we're trying to do to whatever degree we're successful is this idea of, of evangelism via building genuine friendships and communities. And I, I say evangelism, I should be careful with that because I know a lot of the folks we have coming in are Christians, mm. um, but it's, it's a way of inviting them in to this particular church community, this particular community of people not necessarily inviting them into the church because we know that that many of these folks are already followers right. of Jesus. That's what's great too, is because we can learn a great deal from them um, about what Christian faith means. Well, I do just love it that you got TBN to advertise Christian anarchism on its uh, yeah. stations. And uh, yeah. thank you, Justin, for coming and telling us how being an anarchist doesn't mean throwing a brick through a bank window. It might just mean handing out a diet to a single mother. Yes. I love it. That is Thank absolutely you so much. correct. And it's, <laughs> it's as engaged when it, when it's, when it's done, like I think it ought to be, it's, it's, it's engaged as, as any, maybe more so than any political philosophy yeah. that I know of. Um, and it, it just, it melds beautifully with um, all sorts of interpretations of the gospel that say that we're to, to, to feed the poor, but, but also, you know, be friends with folks that Jesus was friends with sinners. And, and, and I I can't go into all that, but the idea of friends of sinners there was, was used by other people as an insult. Um, It wasn't Jesus's wording, right? They, they basically said, Hey, Jesus is being friends with people that aren't 
the upper echelons of society. They are pointing to people who are on the outside marginalized and saying he's friends with them. And so if Jesus is friends with folks there, why shouldn't, why shouldn't we? And why shouldn't we have genuine friendships that, that are mutual back and forth with folks? It's not just us giving to them, but them giving to us. Uh, the, the, the final thing I'll say, I love Chris Awesome has this image of uh, when you hand um, alms to a beggar, in return, that beggar reaches back and offers you healing. And I think that's what we're doing. We're healing one another. Yeah. Um, as as a as a community of Christians, and you might call us all uh, Christian anarchists, whether or not everyone else would would own that title. Wow, Justin, thank you so much for coming and sharing your time with us. Now, two weeks now. What a what an honor and a joy to have you here. Uh, I described you uh, when I first introduced you last week as an, as a scholar and a gentleman. I think I'm going to. I'm going to stick with that if you don't mind. I think that's pretty accurate. I'll take uh, it. Thank you. Thank you, Justin. Uh, uh, anybody who wants to hear uh, more from Justin or to, to read his stuff, you can find him quite easily on uh, his website, which is, you're just going to tell us this. It's rogueminister.org. I rogueminister.org. looked it up. That's the, right, that's the right address. And uh, the books, A Faith Not Worth Fighting For, and then also the upcoming A Business of War. Yes, uh, October 1st release date uh, for the business Brilliant. of war, in the U.S. at least. I'm not sure what the release date is well, elsewhere. But. It's not hiding, put it that way. Nobody's hiding yes, this book. There. We'll find it. It'll be there. Yep. Business Brilliant. of war. Thank you, Justin. I really appreciate you coming. God bless you in the, the work you're doing as we God continue being too. people of peace. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. To further support the show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media and learn more about Tenth Theology at www.tenththeology.com. Thank you for joining us and God bless everyone.